This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic, the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes, danger lurks in the food that we eat. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not, because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies, but it endangers our environment as well. The emissions of JBS, combined with the other top five meat companies, exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Resnitz. Today's episode is a bit of a special one. This interview was recorded back in March with Andrew Clark and Jackson Boxer, the chef owner and partners of St. Leonard's, which is currently open in an incredible restaurant in London. We got the opportunity to sit down with the partners before the restaurant opened, before the reviews, before anyone tried their food, to talk about the concept, how this came into the world, and what their thoughts on on the eve of the opening of the restaurant. And from the archives, we have one of the loudest fans we've ever had on Snacky Tunes, Cal Marks. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'm here with Jackson Boxer and Andrew Clark, sitting in one of the most stunning rooms I've ever been able to conduct an interview in. Where are we? Uh, so we're upstairs in the, in the Grand Saloon of Brunswick House, uh, where our restaurant is, um, our first restaurant that we have together. Um, Brunswick House is amazing. It's an amazing building. It's a private house built for the Duke of Brunswick, who was a cousin of George III's in about 1750, I think the foundation was laid. And it now sits on a four-lane motorway in the middle of central London. But this, when the house was built, would have been sprawling green fields of market gardens supplying the kind of the kitchens of London uh, back, in, back in the day. And it was also the, the home of the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, which were kind of elaborate landscape parks where Londoners could take a boat down the river and come and get absolutely uh, plastered. Um, and tumble into the bushes and get up to all kinds of um, uh, naughty endeavours. Um, and, and not much has changed, actually. Yeah, still yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and this is yeah. last week, exactly. <laughs> 100 years ago. I mean, Vauxhall, Vauxhall, in my childhood, I grew up here, and, and Vauxhall has always been, um, it's, slightly bit, it's always been slightly off-grid. It kind of sits between lots of areas. It's been an industrial kind of uh, hub for London. It's where the big industrial food markets are, the flower market used to be where all the, the mail got sourced. Um, and, and while it's now been kind of grudgingly given its way over to ugly new residential buildings, it still retained a lot of its kind of, um, its kind of off-radar, off-grid messiness uh, down the back streets and under the arches, which is, is one of the, the very delightful things about the neighbourhood. It retains its kind of meaty charm. Um, and I grew up around here. This building was falling into to disrepair. It was a, a working men's club for the railwaymen for most of the 20th century. It was a music hall in the early 20th century. Um, it was kind of, it, it's been many kind of fabulous things. It was a squat when I was a kid and they used to have raves here, um, <laughs> which I was sadly um, yeah, too, too, too young to be able to kind of sneak my way into. But it was, it's always been this kind of incredible landmark building and the roof was caving in. It was a complete disaster. It got taken over about 10 years ago by a, a kind of an, a, a mob of, 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 of salvage merchants who have turned it into the most beautiful showroom for their collection of, of antiques and architectural salvage. Um, when the recession bit in 2008, no one was buying fabulously expensive chandeliers or ornate marble fireplaces. I think they felt like they needed a, another way to justify their existence here. And they invited me to open a small food and kind of coffee and wine bar, um, which I did. I was about 23 and uh, we had about 10 seats at the bar. We spent about £2,000 on a couple of fridges and a coffee machine. Um, most of it came from Argos or second hand. Um, and, and, and we opened and have spent the last eight years uh, kind of turning it into a restaurant. Um, Andrew joined me as my partner. Andrew's one of my oldest and best friends um, and was between jobs and just looking to help out originally just to kind of, you know. That's how it always goes. Just help out. Yeah, just, just one just shift. One just, shift. just one shift. Just one shift. You know. You'll never leave. You'll yeah. never leave. We just um, lock the doors from the inside. Yeah. <laughs> I've got his passport in his um, but yeah, it's good. We're partners now. Uh, we run the place together. Um, and it's been an incredibly fruitful, um, uh, you, know, uh, in, uh, you know, adventure for both of us. I, I, well, I like to think. <laughs> Speaking about growing up, both of you have well-documented references to how your grandparents have influenced you. Curious how that continues and what you carry from them. And if you had grandkids now, what you would teach them about the restaurant industry as either good or bad. I mean, uh, hmm. Do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, for, I think 
you know, for, for me, I, I was a very greedy kid. I, I love food, but I didn't take food seriously. <coughs> I think, you know, I, I, maybe there was a period in my 20s where I took food a bit too seriously. I think I try not to take it seriously at all now. I think the, the thing that I got from my, the associations I had from my grandparents cooking is just one of love. I mean, for me, it was always about going into either of my grandmother's kitchens and seeing them cooking away. And they were both fabulous cooks in very different ways. Um, one was a, a farmhouse country cook who had a huge old oil burning range that was always every oven there was kind of 10 ovens in it and every oven would be stuffed with something there'd be kind of potatoes roasting in one and uh suet puddings bubbling away in another and, and joints of lamb in another it was extraordinary and, and that was kind of constant um whereas my my other grandmother was a very she was a food writer actually um and much more studious and kind of considered in her approach um but still she kind of she, whenever i go and visit her she'd be very you know peaceably and happily just kind of in a, in a kind of incredibly zen-like way, cooking something absolutely extraordinary for, for, for me to eat. And the sense of kind of being loved uh, and being nurtured by food has never left me from my, from my grandmother's. I think about grandkids now, um, the excitement of kind of introducing, uh, I have two small children um, and they're an absolute nightmare to feed. <laughs> I think anyone who has kids knows it's, it's not the kind of rewarding journey of kind of constant discovery and, and wonder that, 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 that you kind of hope for. Um, they do this very frustrating thing, kids, when they're, when they're very young, they eat everything and you get very smug. You're like, oh, look, my two-year-old eats anchovies, you know, <laughs> cool. Uh, and then you're like, oh, my three-year-old will only eat mashed potato. <laughs> only donuts for dinner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Baked beans and donuts. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, the, the, I, I, it, no, being, being a grandparent must be wonderful. I see how, how, how happy it's made my parents. I think that the pressure's really off by that stage, isn't it? You know, no one, no one ever complains to their therapist about their grandparents fucking up. You know, your grandparents just give you love. Your parents mm -hmm. give you issues. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, the idea of being able to kind of share food uh, with family, any family, is is one of the most meaningful things to me. Um, my, my my grandparents uh, indulged the fact that I was a weird little kid that just wanted to be different all the time. So you know, I, I think that's where my love of offal came. And um, it was very, my grandparents had very working class, honest, simple food. Um, but stuff that, you know, St. John has also kind of built a lot of their restaurant uh, and, and their um, philosophies around. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I grew up just loving black pudding and tongue and jelly deals. you good good kind of southeast london east london working class food and um i didn't know any different i wasn't i wasn't necessarily um uh we didn't have sweets we didn't have crisps and stuff like that in the house that we had just that good honest rustic home cooking so that was it for me and it was only being at school and taking like black pudding sandwiches to school and stuff like that that people started saying it's fucking weird and on reflection it is the outside um, world ruined it yeah exactly <laughs> but i didn't know any different that was normal to me how and old were you when you discovered black pudding could be cooked it was about 18. I had it on a fry-up. I thought it was like, a, you know, a good old slicing sausage for a fucking couple of slices of bread. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was uh, that was what I was used to as a kid. My mum, my mum is a great cook now, but uh, a busy parent back in the day, and you know, fish fingers and chips and fucking tin sweet corn was like a. You know, that was like a bit of a luxury for me. Um, <laughs> and it's weird because it, my, my parents are, are very well-traveled and, and, you know, have, have a lot of um, 
knowledge within restaurants and food. We was around it to some extent through my dad's uh, designing of restaurants. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was, if anything was going to make a mark in my career, then it was what my, my grandparents subjected me to. You talk about being life, uh, lifelong or old friends, but you own the place and Andrew, you came in to cook. How did your relationship evolve and like, what kind of communication did you need to develop as owner, chef? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Holy sh- <laughs> is this a family show? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, you both um, talk about, you know, issues and like the hidden hierarchies, but as friends that are now business partners, how did you evolve and, and what language did you have to learn to be able to work together outside of just being mates? I think we had uh, a lot of drinks. <laughs> well, uh, there were a lot of, a lot of, a lot of water on the bridge. Um, yeah, the, <laughs> our friendship was, was a very long, um, and like all long friendships had had its its ups and downs. So I think we, we had we were used to uh, the difficulties uh, that life can throw up and, and getting through those together and the difficulties that you can Yeah, a, a lot of tough testing things. We'd done you know, projects we've done projects before together, um, which had, you know, to varying degrees of success. Um, and and I, you know, I think I think we both knew what stage we were at in our lives. I think I, I've always loved cooking, I've always loved being in the kitchen. But because I opened this place when I was kind of 23, 24, my actual training um, was very, very brief. I had three years uh, working in an amazing gastro pub, but, but wasn't kind of, I, I, I didn't get a very rigorous background. So I was largely self-taught at that stage and had all the kind of chaos, mess um, and disordered thinking of someone who's kind of found the easiest and not necessarily the most sensible or logical way to do things for themselves. Um, whereas Andrew has worked in you know most of the best kitchens in London, very senior positions. And... Um, um, from, was someone I, I looked up to immensely. So I think the fact that Andrew was bringing a huge amount of experience and wisdom and knowledge, the fact that we both had this deep affection for each other, and the fact that we had been through a lot of shit in the past, and Andrew's always forgiven me, um, <laughs> was a good starting point. Um, and, and, you know, I think it was always the sense that, you know, running a business on your own is a nightmare. I mean, I, I do have... Um, I, 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 my, my brother, who I, I work with, has, a, you know, helped me set the place up and, and retains an interest in the place. But he's very rarely here. He has a lot of other projects he's on and nine times out of ten I was just left here with my head in my hands at the end of the night wondering what the hell I should do and with no one to kind of talk it over with and so when the opportunity to make an incredibly respected but also loved and cherished person um, a partner was on the table I mean for me it was really obvious and so I think when you approach something as a partnership rather than from a position of of uh, you know, dis, you know, imbalance if you approach things as equals you can always find a solution if it's respectful um, and touch wood, cross fingers. We've had many disagreements, but we've never had any falling out since we started working here. It's great. No, that's it. I mean, you know, um, I was very fortunate enough that Jackson um, presented me with this position. We'd, we'd done a lot of work together in you know various projects together, and um, I, I think a bunch of times you'd ask me to be a head chef, here and it's like, <laughs> can't afford me. Like, How about I give you a chunk yeah, yeah. of the business? It's like, okay, we can do this. And, um, and it was a it was a hard time for myself. I was going through a breakup and a, a lot of negativity in my life. So it was something for me to latch onto and and uh, you know get under the skin of and just kind of cook my heart out. And um, so he also uh, he brought me he helped bring me back from the dead. I think that's what it was. It, it's interesting you both kind of touch on trust and also completing the circle. Everyone plays plays a part. What is it now that, or roles you took on that you were able to kind of excel in, and vice versa, now that Andrew's here and now that you're working for Jackson, 
Where do the strengths lie? I think, um, I mean, this has always been an evolving project. We've gone from being a kind of a 10-seat counter, basically doing kind of grilled sardines on toast, to, to now being a kind of a very respected restaurant, which is a, a, a destination for its food. Um, that would have never been achieved without Andrew, um, whose immense talent, uh, you know, vision and creative and leadership abilities have kind of not only, you know, made this a smoother sailing ship, um, but also one which is kind of far more exciting, interesting and ambitious. Um, I, I couldn't have done that alone in, in any sense. Um, what it's what Andrew has done is essentially bought, you know, returned this, given this place an incredible momentum and allowed it to push forward, and also made it viable as a business. I mean, you know, there was a sense in which when a place grows and evolves, if it doesn't, if it doesn't increase its talent pool in line with its its growth, it can sometimes overexpand and collapse in on itself. And I think we were at risk of doing that without strong, certainly strong leadership, stronger leadership in the kitchen than I was able to provide. Um, and that, you know, taking me out of the position where I was trying, struggling to do a job that I wasn't capable of doing, um, meant that I could then refocus on other things, recruiting people to manage the business, because I'm not a very good manager either. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm, still, I'm, I'm basically, it's given me the opportunity to try and find something I'm good at. <laughs> I'm still looking. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think the other thing is we're both, we're both kind of quietly quite ambitious, not in the sense of wanting kind of uh, possessions or, or, you know, material rewards, but I think we're both kind of questing souls. We have that in common. We're both adventurous spirits and we're both always looking for a challenge. And I think we realized that while both of us had looked and worked with different partners over the years, we'd finally found someone who could actually achieve lots of interesting, cool stuff with. Um, and I think that's the motivation. I think as, as long as both of us are coming in every day and, and working uh, working our, our, you know, our fingers to the bone to, to kind of push forward and push on and, and achieve new things, I think it's always going to be self-perpetuating you know, self and self-reinforcing. I think that's, that's a, for me, the heart of a great working relationship is commitment. Yeah, I mean, actually working together as uh, I think we, even when we announced it on that Twitter, we wasn't <laughs> expecting such a such uh, an interest. It was just like you know me coming on board as uh, head chef and partner, and and yeah, I guess we would see where things went. But I think within a, a matter of weeks, we had three of uh, the biggest critics in the country come along, and and then I think we we turned around and said we've actually got something here because you know very favourable reviews. And we realise that it's it, it, it's the bones of a really good working future together. So, I mean, you know, that's why we're in a position now where we're looking at where well, we've got the new site opening, a few other projects as well, and it's like we can do this. We're, it's it's uh, our strength together that's important, I think. Yeah, I also, I mean, one of the, the hardest things is is in terms of if you're <clears throat> if you're building something like this, you need you can't just lead you need people to follow you as well mm. um, and the more things you do the more people you need to find who believe in what you're doing and I think working on your own can be terrible for your mm. self-belief because you start second-guessing yourself the whole time you start you know every decision you make you worry about you agonize over and that starts to disseminate through the people around you who are supposed to be looking up to you for reassurance having someone who you share that responsibility with, who you can discuss it with, who you can agree with and you can be united with, that suddenly presents a, a, a much more forceful argument when you're trying to convince people to go over, over the top of that trench, you know, into, into a new launch or in a new direction or, or what have you. Um, and <clears throat> as I said, I mean, it was 
for me, it wasn't a case of, of generosity bringing Andrew on board. It was kind of an, uh, it was absolutely necessary. I, I, I was kind of, you know, I'd already had one nervous breakdown in my, my late 20s and I was kind of fast on the way to a second one quite soon after because the pressures of just trying to do it on your own are, 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 are totally unenviable mm. and, and unsustainable to an extent. I mean, for me, I mean, there are people who can do it very well, made of sterner stuff than I am, but um, yeah, for me, it's, it's incredibly important to to have kind of other creative minds to challenge me, to push me harder, and, and also to, you know, to bounce my own ideas off. It's, 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 it's just much more fun. We're going to take a quick musical break, play something from our archives, and we'll be back with Jackson Boxer and Andrew Clark here on Snacky Tunes.
the new project starts at the end of a long burnout back-to-back shift week with an epic Bacchanalian set stage of a dinner. Lunch, breakfast, over and over and over again. Can you explain to the people, set the stage of where the new restaurant was born and, and how it came to be? Um, I mean, it's the, the, the terrible thing is this is a, a story which has now gone down in legend that neither of us can really remember because we were both <laughs> absolutely shattered. And I think it was probably about two years ago and we were very short staffed. We were very busy. The restaurant, I suppose Andrew had been working there. We, we'd been working together for about seven or eight months mm. and it was just starting to do really well. Um, and we were suddenly, you know, having all those good problems, like we're too busy and, you know, we don't have enough staff to meet our trade and, you know, we've got lots of money, but we don't know what's, you know, money coming in, but, you know, we're not controlling our, you know, all, all of those things that come with the business, uh, suddenly doing well, um, or much better than, than, than expected. And, um, both of us were pushing it quite hard. And I think we felt that for our own peace of mind, it was quite important to escape London for a day. So we, we did something that we hadn't done until that point and both booked the same day off uh, one week and ordered a load of food in clandestinely from uh, our favorite suppliers, um, some huge fish, some lobsters, some crabs, some shrimp, uh, some you know a whole side of beef and cast it down to the country to my mum's house, which is a tiny old 13th century farm cottage on the side of a hill in West Sussex in a very pretty um, and lost and slightly unspoiled um, place. It's only about an hour from London, but it's very beautiful. And we grow a lot of vegetables down there. We grow a lot of stuff at the restaurant. Um, and Andrew had never really seen it, so I wanted to take him down and show it to him. Um, we took along my brother, um, who I think was hadn't been to bed for a couple of days, maybe at that stage. Uh, and Jeremy Lee, who's a great mutual friend of ours, an incredible cook uh, for moral support because he's uh, he's wonderfully reinvigorating company. If you ever need a good lunch, if you ever need being picked up, I having lunch yeah, with yeah. Jeremy Lee and a magnum or two of wine is is, is you couldn't be sad, could you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and the weather was beautiful. It was a day like today. It was it was. I mean, any good day in England uh, is, is kind of feels slightly unseasonal, but this was kind of peak English summer and it was absolutely beautiful. And we had the last of the kind of beautiful green things. You know, there were still a few kind of sprigs of asparagus poking about, but, you know, all, all the flowers were in full bloom. Um, and we, we turned, you know, I don't think either of us had much sleep for, for many reasons. We were both up the night before, yeah, I think. I think so. I think together we were together. together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's probably time yeah. to go to bed. Yeah. And um, but it's, exactly. Um, and in, but instead of doing that, we pushed on through and we lit a big fire um, in the old kind of bread oven and one outside. And we, we just cooked everything and we put everything on the table and there were only kind of six of us and there were about six magnums of wine and, and my mother at the head of the table. Um, and we cooked this feast and it was probably the most perfect, um, beautiful, and kind of just absolutely sublime experience of my life, cooking these beautiful things over a wood fire with Andrew and then serving it to my family. Um, and it felt like the, the, the end of a journey to get there, uh, getting this restaurant on track together and, and building this relationship. But it also felt like the start of something really exciting. And I don't think we really kind of paid attention to it at the time, but looking back, it's become, it's taken on this, this slightly mythical quality in both of our memories about, you know, being when we knew that this was something that was really working, when we knew that this was kind of a really good thing that we were onto. Um, fast forward a couple of years, um, this site gets made available to us. Um, on St. Leonard Street. On, yeah, on, uh, yeah, so on Leonard Street in, in Shoreditch, which is in the historic parish of St. Leonard, named after St. Leonard of Nobilac, who is a medieval, um, you know, he's one of those one of those kind of Franciscan-style saints who, who you actually kind of feel slightly sympathetic towards because <laughs> he seemed not to like people very much and live in the forest with animals. And, you know, uh, 
yeah, he's if you're going to name uh, if you're going to kind of pay reference to the to the to the Christian saints, he seems like one of the good ones. Um, you know, we, we looked at this site, and um, and I think suddenly something clicked in the back of our heads when we realised that there was an enormous space where we could build a big log fire. Um, and I think there was some kind of primal memory of this feast that we did together that both sides so a few cogs whirring. Um, and um, fast forward kind of six months and, and here we are. I mean, hopefully we'll be open in a, in a, in a couple of weeks. You mentioned uh, about taking food too seriously in your 20s, and I think for a lot of people who are artists or craftsmen or in any way, in your 20s it feels like you're proving something, you're showing that you understand the skill of the trade, but you see people reverting back almost to simple kind of straightforward food. What do you think it is about people's desire to prove something and then the, the reversion back to something that just touches the soul? I always see it from a, a chef point of view. That we all go through this. Um, <clears throat> by the time you take over as a head chef, you want to tell the world that you've arrived and you know, I'm here and this is my food and this is what I can do. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a flexing of muscles. But, um, yeah, eventually... It, it, that kind of the level of food that people often do isn't sustainable. So, <laughs> and uh, you know, if you want to continue doing that, there's going to be a lot of sleepless nights, and um, you'll you'll exhaust yourself out. So I think people end up just being confident of their, you know, like a boxer's career or a footballer's career. You can go out kind of on top, and then you just you don't want to give up cooking, but you just do the simple stuff, the stuff that actually people want to eat, really. And you know you're safe in the knowledge that you're delivering things that are delicious. Um, don't really have any, um, you know, you're not sacrificing uh, your. Ooh, shit, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I think from I think one of the universal things is that you know you can cook from anger or you can cook from love. Um, and I think in your twenties, especially young young men, tend to carry a lot of anger around with them and have a lot to prove. And I certainly, for me, my 20s was a very messed up time. And a lot of my motivations now when I look back were all wrong. You know, I was coming from a place of, of aggression and negativity, and, but feeling like I needed to fight to survive because, you, you know, you're suddenly thrust into the adult world with no support. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a competitive place. I think as you achieve, you know, as you find a, a, a little a place for yourself in the world as you carve out a niche for yourself you can kind of suddenly find a bit of security and you can go back to to finding this thing that was what I always loved about food which is that it's a loving thing um, and as soon as you lose that that sense of kind of righteous anger and aggression you know and you go back to just finding a way to like to love and to nourish that's an amazing transition and I feel very very liberated by it I feel like I no longer have nearly so much to prove um, either as a cook or as a man. There's also a confidence in being able to, um, you know, just deliver really good, well-executed food, but not, you know, just not fussy, do you know what I mean? It's, I, I think that's how I've uh, been in my 30s as opposed to my 20s. 20s, I was definitely trying too hard. Yeah, I think also that, you know, the, the elegance of simplicity, it's, it's, it's the hardest thing to do. You know, anyone can kind of put kind of hundreds of complicated elaborate elements on the plate and God knows I'm still guilty of it a lot. You know, you can really overthink dishes and you know I think we've all done that thing late at night. Poor Andrew's received many two AM texts from me as I make a new dish proposal and he's just like, let's talk about it in the morning. <laughs> Go to sleep. Yeah. I mean Andrew you said if it's good produce, leave it the fuck alone. Do you think that uh, growing up and having that confidence um, and that kind of centeredness that comes with being a an adult allows you to put something just very simple but very good on the plate and serve it to people with, with extreme confidence? Uh, I definitely do. I mean, actually, I mean, there was a lot of... Uh, the, 
say St John for instance, so, you know, very influential restaurant in for both of us. Um, but I think I was doing quite fussy food until I discovered St John in my early twenties, and then thought, oh, shit, actually, <laughs> this is really where it, it needs to be because it was all delicious. It was food you want to eat, mm. and uh, I think when I started adopting that viewpoint um it made my life a lot easier and instead of like trying to make things look pretty on the plate it was like which i you know i try and do a little bit of that but not over fast it was more about sourcing really good amazing things so i started off on that journey try and find the best tasting pork mm. and the best tasting vegetables and um uh, I, we continue with that now it's it's uh, the heart of what we do really yeah i i think also there's there's a there's a terribly uh, boring trend uh, in in kind of foods, and I'm sure this isn't just London, but the preoccupation of Instagram um, with Instagram with making foods look dazzling or attractive, but not investing any care in actually the quality of the cooking or the quality of the produce means that a lot of times I you know I get invited out to a new opening and it's it's perfectly nice, but it's totally uninteresting, unexceptional. You can see that all the effort has gone into creating a beautiful tableau, which will photograph well, but not actually to invest in the dish with any thought or love or, or quality. Um, and I mean, I think people are catching on to this. I certainly feel like more and more you find people responding very well to a very judicious form of artful simplicity that just tastes really good and that is kind of redolent of inherent quality. I think people really respond to that. Both of you have talked about issues that come with being in the culinary industry, both from a front of house, Jackson with your article in The Guardian, and Andrew with your well-documented struggles with mental health and, mm -hmm. and drug addiction, and Pilot Light. Can you talk about it from both sides and maybe explain why now is the time that people are finally opening up about the issues that come with this industry and why this is the era where people can show maybe the hierarchy is wrong, maybe the abuse is wrong, and, and how it actually affects human and the human psyche? Well, I certainly think from our point of view, um, uh, again, it's something we've both said, but we are finding it harder and harder to get chefs in London. And I understand around the world, I mean, you know, there is not enough people coming into the industry anymore. So it takes a massive rethink and a change of attitude to say, hey, maybe we've got to fucking look at how we're, you know, uh, looking after each other in the industry and try not to uh, burn anyone out. You know, it goes back to that thing about, the sustainability of chefs and if you're working 100 hours a week there is going to be a point where you can get disheartened or you just you know you implode you you wonder why you're doing it all um and it will bring a lot of negativity and um a bitterness so i i think what i'd like to do is you know we, we, we look at sustainable food but maybe we need sustainable chefs maybe we need sustainable front of house um, so it's about giving something back. I, and, and I don't necessarily think it's going to get easier. I think we're still going to be doing a, a, a fair few hours. And I'm, I'm afraid sometimes the money is kind of shit. But it is a really rewarding industry if you can get through it. And just, you know, giving each other a little pat on the back occasionally and, you know, uh, helping each other through some, some of the tougher times might just... Um, allow us to stay all in the industry that little bit longer. I think, um, I think the other thing that really needs to be said is neither me nor Andrew believe that the industry is inherently abusive, neither that it is or that it needs to be. I think for us, it's, it's an amazing industry because it allows people who don't necessarily fit into other job roles or other kind of other paths, to, it gives them a home. I mean, it's always been a place for people, you know, who, who haven't necessarily found kind of reward in other 
in, in other careers and, and it can it can assimilate them into a, into a very happy family and it's a it's a it's an amazing motley crew we have down there between the front of house and the back of house of of kind of actors and designers and artists and people who you know people from all with all different directions that are going in all different paths who for now have found that actually working in restaurants whether it's kitchens or, or front of houses is, is an amazing place for them to be i think also from a mental perspective it's an it's an incredibly supportive environment for people who have slightly delicate mental health um i find that a lot of people who work in kitchens actually do kind of exhibit nascent um or at least kind of low level um kind of patterns of slight mental irregularity and why shouldn't they we're all a bit fucked up <laughs> however you know it's always been very good at creating a stable environment for those people the problem we have is that as soon as they leave our house we don't look after them we're not we're not taking that idea of, of looking after our um our, our valuable you know our, our you know our valuable human resource which is our, our team and, and making sure that we're taking care of them when they leave here it's, it's you know encouraging a culture of late night drinking and drug taking isn't necessarily going to mean that people turn up the next day in the best mood is that really good for their long-term well-being you know it's like it's more it's less about how kitchens are bad for people's mental health it's more about how everything that goes around uh kitchen life isn't necessarily good for the kind of people who are attracted to working in kitchens and so i think what we're trying to do is just make sure that this is a more healthful more rewarding and more nurturing environment rather than, than questioning the whole way that they function. I was, um, I've been working with um, a guy called Floyd Woodrow, on, uh, who's a, a highly decorated SIS uh, soldier, and he's been helping us um, with the project anyway. Um, and, you know, one of the things we learn about the, uh, the SIS is how, you know, obviously dedicated and hardworking they are in, in their craft, but at the same time, they rest up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They rest up between... Um, jobs and uh they're not they're, they're not kind of like a lot of the the armed forces it's just constant brutality and just moving forward but you know if they're going to be the best soldiers that they can be it's about resting and that's what we're now trying to encourage in our kitchens it's like you know rest up on your days off don't go out on a fucking bender and spend the you know the the, the final day, day off just in bed you know playing catch up for the week and you know a, a a big night out. Um, just try and rest up, fight fire with fire, and go out and exercise as well. You know, if you're feeling tired, go and get some adrenaline running through your body. Final question: If Brunswick House can be defined by a couple of songs, and St. Leonard can be defined by a couple of songs, what is on the playlist of each? Oh, God, <laughs> Andrew, you take that one. <laughs> That's all you. Uh, Brunswick House. Damn. Brunswick House has already always had an insanely eclectic selection of music, so it would kind of situate itself somewhere between, um, you know, uh, the kind of modern theatricality of kind of Scott Walker, and then the kind of fabulously ex fabulous expansiveness of, of Diana Ross, um, with with something hard, fast, and adrenal coming out of the kitchen, probably the Ramones, um, St Leonard's. We're trying to do something kind of. I mean, in, in my head, it's Black Sabbath. There's something yeah. Black Sabbath. There. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, Sabbath I, I, here or Sabbath there? <laughs> Sabbath there. Sabbath there. I, I mean, you know, right, yeah, Sabbath. I, I, I probably have my own soundtrack to, following me around during the day. It's, um, I, well, there's a lot of fire and ice, so maybe there's something, uh, that, maybe there's something that Sabbath do that's, that would work with that. Planet Caravan. Planet Caravan. Planet Caravan. I want to thank you guys for thank you. being on the show. Where can people find you, follow you on Instagram? Sorry, website, no Instagram. 
no, we're on Instagram. We're on websites. You can just Google our names. I think you probably <laughs> that will that, that'll, that'll do the do the job. Um, yeah, I mean Brunswick House London, London. Those are our restaurants. Um, but we also keep maintaining kind of a you know you got to be out there in the world on, on 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 these things. And I think Instagram, for all its for all it for all the negative impacts it can have on the dining experience, is not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's been amazing for global communication. I think the fact that you know there are people in America who are following what we're doing, people in in Australia who are following what we're doing, and we're following back. And you know it's created a sense of much more. The world's got smaller, but yeah. more uh, more interesting as a result. I mean, you know, the worst thing is feeling isolated when you're in a kitchen. If you yeah. feel like you're in conversation with people all over the world, it's a very very empowering thing um you know but i think i think it's like the early days of twitter when when i first joined twitter it was literally just people in the industry talking to each other and other people listening in there was no sense that you had to actually engage um that that idea that you actually engage with everyone who asks you a question for me i mean i wish i had time to do it um whereas instagram is slightly easier because you can just put an image out there and it's up for people to respond to and there's no expectation that it's it's an ongoing conversation and while i think ongoing conversations are very important it's not necessarily something that we have time to, to do ourselves so so you know I think Instagram's great um, but I do think that we just need to be kind of wary about being too seduced by its by its charms and with that we're gonna play a song from our archives and we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate 
and wish HRN a happy birthday. This program is brought to you by Jules Sous Vide. My name is Katie Mosman Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real life Jewel user. When you cook with Jewel, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Parrot app is intuitive to use and preloaded with all the recipes you'll need, and it has a great visual doneness guide. Jewel is awesome for holiday cooking. It's easy to cook for a crowd, and it's perfectly precise, so you can focus on entertaining without worrying about checking food temps, while Jewel does all the work. You can try out new cuts fearlessly. One of the best things I ever made sous vide was a juicy, tender heritage goose with juniper berries, and it was life-changing. And pro tip, Jewel is small and packs easily, so you can sneak it along on your holiday travels to be this season's food hero everywhere you go. With Jewel, you get perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code HRN as in Heritage Radio Network to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E code HRN. And happy holidays from all of us at Team HRN. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm Darren Bresnitz. This is Greg Bresnitz. We have Boston in the house. Hey, Boston. What's up, Hello. Boston? Hello. Wait a, thanks for driving down for this, guys. No problem. We were just talking about uh, Anna's Taqueria, which is my, still today probably number one burrito spot, quesadilla spot. I disagree, but it's good. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, so thanks for coming down. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> what's, what's, what's your spot? Uh, it's not in Boston. It's, uh, it's a little bit outside of Boston. It's called uh, Tacos Lapita. Okay, so I'm talking about in Boston. Oh, then I guess, I guess you're pretty you're, you're right. Right. I would actually <laughs> say Habaneros is my favorite. Habaneros is really good. That's in Alston, like right in the heart of it. Uh, okay, I think that may have... Uh, I mean, it, it has been like what eight and a half years since you've been there. Nine, nine years. Nine years. So did you live there? <laughs> I did. I went to. Uh, I lived in Alston Rock City. Oh, nice. oh okay. Had a house that shows. Cool. Yeah, you never heard of me. <laughs> uh, so, well, why don't you introduce yourselves? Who you are? What you do in the band? I'm Carl. I play guitar. I'm Nick. I play drums. I'm Mike. I play the bass. So I know the band has had a number of incarnations with Carl. You just being solo, and then you guys came in this year, but. You want to kind of take a little bit back to the beginning and just give us the, the origins and how you guys got to here in this room defending different taco places and <laughs> to guys in Williamsburg? Well, the truth is we've been defending taco places since the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, no, uh, yeah. I started like when I was, I want to say I was like about 18 years old, so that had to be in like 2007. I started writing songs and recording them uh, just on my own under this name, but I didn't really have any intention of having it always be like solo stuff. Right. So after a while, I got really bored of just doing solo shows and stuff, and eventually had people play along. And eventually, I wanted something s- s- solid and actually have like a solid lineup. And now we're at this. How loud were you when it was just you? Was it? How loud were you when it was just you? <laughs> oh, oh, very quiet. In fact, one one of the shows that I had that was like, I am done with. I, I have to do this electric now. Was just like a house show playing acoustic, and there was a just a, like a bunch of drunk guys just yelling at me, just like, 
Yeah, you think you're Bob Dylan, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and it was terrible. So you really were like, all right, fuck this extreme. I'm going to the other side of this. Uh, <laughs> well, then you had your Bob Dylan Newport moment, right? Yeah. When you plugged in. Yeah. yeah. Everyone was pissed. Yeah. Oh, so angry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we actually, we had a, a baby uh, sitting outside of the studio and we had to move the baby inside because of uh, what's about to come. Why don't, why don't we get a song? Uh, yeah, sure. yeah, we'll do a song right. and then we'll, we'll come back and talk more, but uh, you know, a little bit less talk, more rock. Uh, give us a second to re, uh, re- what song are you guys gonna sing, play first? Uh-oh. Uh oh. Oh man. Uh-oh. We're gonna. Oh, if I figure this out. There's a little hole there. Already coming and breaking shit. Not even <laughs> one song in. There it is. Who do you think you are? All right. What's the first one you're going to play? Uh, Love is a song, not an answer. Okay. Uh, live on Snacky Tunes. Done. We'll be deemed impossible. Oh, I felt your sign along with my sweetie little boy. One love song. Michelada down. Michelada down. Michelada down. Uh, I, I will have to say this is the first time that I've had to wear headphones in the studio. It's... I, oh, man. These people are not happy. <laughs> They're okay. Uh, what kind of bands usually play? Like uh, it's like the first incarnation of this band. No, it's oh, fine. Right, it's yeah. Sunday. We wanted to kind of bring in the rock a little bit uh, on Sunday. So... Um, 
Yeah, so let's talk about the, the new record. Uh, you know, it's an evolution from the last one that you did, which was a little bit more home studio. Um, what was the, you know, what changed the process and what, you know, how did you guys approach this differently? Somebody want to take this? So I can <laughs> fix this microphone again. Yeah. Um, I just joined this band, I don't know. Yeah, Nick, well, yeah. Uh, well, we had plans on making a record uh, when we were last on tour and our drummer quit the day we got back. So it a seemed bit like... A shocker. Yeah, and <laughs> he, I don't know, he was like really hating us and uh, and so it ended and I just thought the band was going to be over and then it, Nick just immediately Well, hold on, if it, if it was a solo project to begin with, I mean, the only person who, I yeah. mean, how does that work? Well, the thing was, I finally been like be- become accustomed to the idea of it being a band and I felt like these people have their roles in the band if if uh he's gone then it's it's over and also it's very hard to find a good drummer and uh i was very happy with nick jumping in though i feel like drummers and actually the drummers and bass players it depends on like certain scenes it's like one or the other interchangeable that it's hard to it's hard to find yeah and in boston it's drummer I mean, yeah. everyone wants to be a guitar player, you know. Yeah, every, that's, yeah. that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, so you guys reformed, uh, new new drummer, and then uh, you decided to get in the studio. Yeah, yeah. I joined in uh, last March, and then right from there, we like had some practices, played some shows, and then we just kind of immediately went to the studio. Yeah, and I yeah. was only playing with the group for like two months at that point before we started to decide to record. Yeah, and. Uh, but Nick had gone on a... We had toured with his other band, so he was, like, pretty uh, familiar with everything. Gotcha. What other bands? Uh, my other band's called Big Mess. Okay. Yeah. You just want to shout out other people and who you play with in the Boston scene? Because I know you guys come from, like, a pretty tight group of bands. Uh, sure. Uh, Name them out. Call uh, them out. Well, obviously, like, Pile. They've been kind of uh, the most... Uh, popular, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but but, but like the, you, can say, you can say the word popular. Yeah, okay. I mean, Pile's like also pretty like influential too. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they. I mean, they're the one of the bands that's actually like doing it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what does that mean? They're act, they're like doing nothing, it for the right reasons yeah, and not. There's, there's no like they're always working on things and yeah, always yeah. having rehearsals. They're just like working on the craft, practicing and, a lot. And they're the one band that I could say that like absolutely deserves everything they've gotten. Like and they've gotten they've gained a lot of popularity like recently in the past like two years and like it's nothing sketchy it's nothing like weird it's just all they just didn't like, sell out yeah it's all deserved yeah like, just a great yeah. bunch of guys I'm also like roommates with them too so it's like <laughs> it's a good living situation can, can I ask now that I guess I'm ten years removed from like the DIY Boston scene is is there still selling out like I feel in well, this day and age I don't I, I don't know I mean, what actually not like, that is it's not like it's not like I don't know. It's not like selling out. It's just like you know they like, they they, they stick. They they stuck to their roots, I guess, and they still like people like they're still really popular and like they, I don't know. They just rule. Yeah. That's it. Like, I don't really know what else to say. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. Ruling is an acceptable yeah. answer. And then there's there's a couple there's a couple new bands. Uh, uh, there's Chandeliers. Those are good friends of ours. Um, 
Fat History Month, uh, Ski Mask. Wait, Fat History Month? Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sneeze, Krill. Yeah. Um, New England Patriots. <laughs> No, that the Googleability on that name is probably pretty hard. Boston, yeah, right. New England yeah. Patriots, yeah, it's band. A, it's Boston a, Red Sox. So. Yeah. <laughs> and so, where are you guys playing? Are there house shows? Or are they venues? Or what? Are we There's not about? so many house shows anymore. But yeah, we used to play like a lot of house shows. What happened? Cops. Cops. Yeah, that's Cops. basically it. Yeah. I'm not a cop. It was like yeah. a it was like a span of a week, and they just like, as far as Boston goes, there was like a span of a week where they just like. Fuck took everybody. care of everything. Oh, like, wasn't, wasn't there that thing with that cop on the message board? Yeah, yeah, yeah Joe yeah. Sly. Joe Sly, yeah. 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 Did they ever find out who Joe Sly actually was? He's still puking green beer. Oh, my God. <laughs> so funny. That was the lamest. I like DIY there? concerts. Yeah. What's who the likes uh, DIY just, concerts? Uh, there was a, a cop who like joined like uh, Twitter and yep. message boards. And he's like, I, I like DIY concerts. I'm still puking green beer. Where's the next show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very inconspicuous person. Yeah. And, yes. and his name was Joe Sly. Joe, Joe Sly. Sly. Like, literally. And Sly. his <laughs> Facebook picture was, like, a drawing? It was, like, an a... MS Paint drawing of, like, a punk with a green mohawk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, they, yeah, I'm not a cop. And then you, <laughs> have, you, have, you have to tell me. I, I'm... And then there was another person that was, like, messaging a lot of people who was a cop, clearly, because her it was a, supposedly a woman and her Facebook picture was like her with two people and like the two people were like ta- Facebook tagged as like Justin Bieber and the bass player from <laughs> Slipknot yeah they like they spent like no time on background stories yeah, yeah. Yeah. no not at all they're like these kids these kids aren't savvy yeah. they have no idea um, why don't we get a, another song yeah sure cool and we might have to buy that table outside around the beers yeah. or by the looks of it a bottle of wine but We'll go with it. Um, what are you guys going to play? This, this, what's the name of this one? Do you want to do River? Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, this song's called uh, Where a River Starts and Ends. Ah, 
is where we heard her all. Oh, after I implored you, oh, in this river, it's a ride, and it's hard to realize. Oh, we all be returned to the ocean. So, I mean, since you guys just kind of formed as a, a band and you're able to go to the studio, I mean, usually it takes years to get chemistry, and that record is really tight and really good. So, was it just kind of, you know, clicked naturally, or how did you guys feel through the, the process? Uh, these guys are really good at playing their instruments, so that definitely <laughs> helps. Thanks, dude. I'm, I'm a complete idiot. When it comes to, I I have no guys. That's real, why you jump in. and say no, 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 no. no. no I I've, <laughs> I I have no real good training at all, and they they they're good at making sense of it all. It's good songs, dude. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. You guys, you guys cook. You guys eat together. Do you guys uh, like hang out like that? We don't hang out. No. <laughs> no, no, we hang out. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, do we cook together? I don't know. Hang out, grab meals. Carl's made me dinner before. What'd you make? What did I make you? Uh, I like spaghetti. <laughs> oh, I, th- yeah. I think I think I've actually cooked for both of you at some point. Oh yeah, as well. you made me that pork stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you pork, pork stuff. Yeah. yeah, I made that like a good old like pork and sriracha sandwich yeah. for you and some kind of pasta thing for you. I That's think. right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So what do you guys got coming up this fall? You guys touring more? Yeah. yeah right. And the record's coming out middle of this month, right? Yeah. I think yep. so. Very soon. Big shout out to Dan. Yeah. He's out there. Hell yeah. Thank you, yeah. Dan, for setting this up. Wu-Tang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what's, uh, tell us about the album. Tell us about the tour. 
Uh, the tour starts uh, a week from Thursday. So yeah, next, on the 19th. Next Thursday, the ni- yeah. And uh, it'll be for three weeks through the Midwest and like back up the East Coast. Um, you can talk about the album. Huh? Um, the album is going to be out in like... Uh, right oh. before we leave. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The 17th. Two, day, two days before we leave. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, so yeah, we actually have the records... Um, we just have to get the covers and, uh, and we're, we're, just get the sleeves and we're ready to go. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you press final. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Dan helped us out with his label exploding in sound. Yeah. Uh, Boston based label called uh, midnight werewolf helped us out. And then a Louisville label called uh, sophomore lounge helped us out. Yeah. So the three of those combined. It's pretty yeah. amazing. How yeah. did you, how were you able to get all three to come to together? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like they're all three labels are like kind of of the same mindset, just helping helping yeah. helping smaller like DIY yeah. bands out. So it kind of just all made sense. Yeah, all friends. Yeah, all good friends. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, so we're gonna uh, find time to get one more in here. But what are the nuts and bolts? Yeah, get, people can find you. Uh, can they pre-order the album or? They yeah, they can pre-order the album at the Bandcamp. Um, I don't know the Bandcamp address off the top. I think it's just calmarks.bandcamp.com. Yeah, I believe believe you're correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Leave it to the drummer to know it, which no one ever says, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you can pre-order it there. uh, And, uh, yeah, we'll be sending them out, like... Awesome. And then... Next week. Instagram, Twitter, email, Facebook. Facebook, we have Facebook, and that's it. Okay. Yeah. And you can always write one of the labels. You gotta get that Instagram feed up for the tour. None of, oh, None, he's, he's got a oh, fancy phone. Oh, he's the only one that has a smartphone. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess I have to do that now. What do you want? <laughs> flip, flip, flip phone? Yeah, the iFlip. Yeah, I, okay. I, got, a, I got a Go phone. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Um, all right, guys. Well, thanks for uh, joining us. Um, this is our first uh, Sunday Snacking Teams. I'll actually will be doing our last Monday show tomorrow. I'll be in Chicago. Uh, I'm going to step on out and go hug the... Uh, hug the staff on this last one so they don't <laughs> murder us but uh, I'm going to let Darren take this out uh, well I want to thank everybody thanks Amanda thanks Heritage That's thank you short, right? to everybody who put up with us uh, and uh, we got one last song and then we'll be back next Sunday uh, with another awesome show and some more beer drinking um, here we go this is probably the last live band we're allowed like one live band uh, like super loud live band every two years uh, it was, I can't even remember as I long ago. Oh, I can tell you, uh, in one second. It's not going to matter. All right. Uh, what song, what song are you going to play? What song are you going to play for us? Oh, it's the, it was the Death by Audio Guys side project. Oh, yeah. Um, what song are you going to play for us? Uh, Parking Lot. Okay. Well, here we go. Thank you so much, uh, for being on Snacky Tunes. We'll be here next week with, uh, some more. We just got some more stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to be a lot of, of good stuff. Um, here we go.
Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.